0: This podcast is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. A great way to support the library is by visiting the Library Shop, where you can find thousands of items for book lovers, like library totes, mugs, and magnets, boasting quotes from famous writers. Visit shop.nypl.org and use the code PODCAST for a 10% discount. And remember, every purchase supports the New York Public Library. Welcome to the New York Public Library Podcast, where each week we bring you conversations with world-renowned authors, artists, and thinkers, recorded in front of a live audience in New York City. For this week's episode, we're bringing you a conversation between two public intellectuals who have contributed immensely to our understanding of history, literature, cultural criticism, and politics. MacArthur Fellow Henry Louis Gates Jr. and Pulitzer Prize winner Margot Jefferson. Gates and Jefferson recently sat down at the library for a special event on Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin, co-presented with the Studio Museum in Harlem.
1: Described as a book closer in spirit to a performance by the King of Pop himself, something graceful, capable of moves both liquid and percussive. And our moderator, Thelma Golden, director and chief curator of the Studio Museum in Harlem is, uh, as I said, our co-sponsor tonight. Thelma came to the Studio Museum from the Whitney, where she curated many notable exhibitions, including black male representations of masculinity in contemporary art. At the Studio Museum, Thelma oversees one of the city's cultural treasures, a rich exhibition program, an important artist-in-residence program education and public programming, school youth, senior, and family outreach programs. And finally, Hollis Robbins, who is Skip's co-editor on this book, Hollis is a member of the humanities faculty of the Peabody Institute of Johns Hopkins University, and she's currently working on a wonderful book-length project entitled Post Office Stories, Communication, Circulation, and the Structure of Narrative Literature. Ladies and gentlemen, our four guests.
2: Hmm. going to say, let's get Skip situated. First. Yeah, that's a good idea. Mm-hmm. Thank
3: you. My God.
2: Good evening, everyone. This is a great pleasure to be here to have this conversation with these three incredibly exciting individuals. As I told Skip earlier, I came to Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin through James Baldwin, as many people did, but I actually had the privilege of being a student of Baldwin's in the middle 80s in Western Massachusetts at Smith College. And he taught us Uncle Tom's Cabin by way of his essay, Everybody's Protest Novel, and then gave us somewhat of a sermon uh, about why what we should think and feel about Harriet Beecher Stowe and Uncle Tom's Cabin itself. So it was a great introduction to me into how I understood what this book really was about and its great impact on Baldwin and then ultimately on all of us. But that really is the second half of the story. And I'm wondering if you, Skip, and Hollis can talk about what brought you to this project of re-examining Uncle Tom's Cabin.
4: Well, I I wanted to... First of all, I was approached by Bob Weil, the editor at Norton, because it never occurred to me to edit this book. And he asked if I was interested in, in doing it, and I said, and I asked Hollis if she was interest, interested. But the reason I was interested is that I wanted to figure out how a book that was so popular among African-Americans, particularly African-American intellectuals in the 19th century, Frederick Douglass, uh, William G. Allen, and, um, 1853 uh, uh, reviewed it. Fred Douglass wrote about it b- between 1853 and 1855. Du Bois in 1903 talked about how beautifully rendered the book had been. And how. And James Weldon Johnson said the two most important influences on the shaping of the African American literary tradition, the souls of black folk and Uncle Tom's Cabin. And he wasn't being ironic or or um, cynical or talking about it in a negative way how a book that those gods of the black tradition could revere so thoroughly could become reviled for our generation and the person who was the hero of that novel become the um, where his name become the epithet for race betrayal for the worst thing that you could possibly be in the african-american tradition so that's why I did also I fell in love with the book because I saw, when I was about nine years old, on Little Rascals.
3: (laughs) Do you want to go take a look at that now? Yeah, sure. (laughs) It's the best part.
4: When Eliza crosses the ice flows, and then when little Eva dies, these are two of my most vivid memories from my childhood. And it's from the Little Rascals. When was the, the film? The 1930s?
3: I think it was 1937,
5: yes. 37. Up here, great.
4: sound.
6: <laughs> All right, let me go back a little bit because
2: <laughs>
4: little Eva' is about to come back to life
3: <laughs> there we go I
6: expect anything in this I got him. <laughs>
3: flows. <laughs>
4: It was a bit more powerful when I was nine years old. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Can you talk a little bit about what happened between the 19th century and this great popularity? What happened was
4: um, the Great Migration, and um, as we know, starting about 1910 and ending—well, historians I think—end the Great Migration about 1970. Millions and millions of um, rural Southern Black people moved to urban areas, first in the South. And secondly, southern people moved uh, north. And by the first time we, we um, well, Stephen Railton at the University of Virginia records the use of the phrase Uncle Tom in the sense that we use it today was um, 1919 at a Marcus Garvey rally. And, and Bishop McGuire, and he used it in the way that we would use it. And um, so I spent a lot of time thinking about that. There, were, there was a huge class division within the African-American community. There was always a class division in the African-American community, of course. But when the southern migrants came um, to these settled northern urban communities, the class tensions implicit in the race just exploded. So there were many essays. Go back and read Du Bois' Philadelphia Negro, which was published in 1899. It's very condescending about people from the south and um, new arrivances, as Braithwaite would say. Um,
7: yeah, then expressions start emerging like, you know, clothes that look kind of country. What's she doing in that mammy-made dress? Yeah, you got you know, it. It's Aunt Chloe from Uncle Tom.
4: Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So by the Harlem Renaissance, by the time that Alain Locke published The New Negro in 1925, people were saying... The day of um, the Aunt Jane or, and the mammy or the Uncle Tom is over. There's a new Negro here. So there were all different kinds of new Negroes. But it's the first time within the race that a word was used, a phrase was used to define who was in, who was out, who was politically correct, as we would say today, and who was politically incorrect. And, uh, and that fascinates me because I was born in 1950. I came of age in the mid-60s. And um, we know that Malcolm X famously called Martin Luther King an Uncle Tom, and it wounded Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King, Malcolm X gave a speech, in 1963, and the next night um, um, King gave a speech, and he was in the same city and was pelted with eggs because Malcolm had called him an Uncle Tom and said that he was uh, the 20th century embodiment of this character from Harriet Beecher Stowe's novel.
7: Which had come by that time to mean um, not only a toady to the white establishment, but absolutely lacking in any kind of virility, That's potency, right. You know, vitality.
4: Right. And James Baldwin introduced that concept okay. in his essay, which you had to study in your class in, in Amherst. He said that Uncle Tom was sexless, and that, um, and literally and figuratively sexless. Mm-hmm. And of course, you don't see him as a, a virile figure in, in the novel, but the novel certainly is not sexless at all.
2: And you say
3: that your introduction. Can you speak a little bit about that?
4: Are, are we going to let Holloway? Yeah. Well, <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, I came to it very late. Actually, I didn't read it growing up. It had already not been in part of the school curriculum, so I didn't read it until graduate school, and I thought my God, this is a book about sex. Uh, (laughs) I wasn't quite sure how it was, but I realized it was all in the discussion of marriages and the various marriages, like Senator Byrd and his wife, he comes home for one evening, and they already have five children, one is dead. And he's like, I thought I'd just come home for an evening of warmth. And I thought, oh, okay. And, And I started looking at the Quaker couples and all the other couples, George and Eliza, very loving, very caring, except the one couple that I thought didn't seem to be loving, though they had a lot of children, or three children, three children, was Tom and Chloe. And I wondered what Stowe was doing with that, why she, even within his cabin, was not showing him to be uh, virile. Mm-hmm. And it made me think, well, I, I think that probably has to do with him spending the entire book with little Eva sitting on his lap. And that just <laughs> really kind of wouldn't do. So we started talking about that. Right.
2: Can you talk a little bit about how you came to thinking about this format of the annotations and the place in which you enter into the text and begin thinking about some of these themes that in this fantastic volume, you know, get illuminated?
4: Well, Hollis was able to read it in graduate school because of a really strong group of feminist critics, Mm -hmm. um, such as Jane Jane Tompkins and Liz Ammons and Mm -hmm. Anne Douglas. resurrected this book, mm-hmm. and they read it, well, through a feminist lens. And I thought wouldn't it be interesting if what they were able to do for a female readership with this novel we were able to do for an African-American readership, in other words, to recuperate Uncle Tom as a novel from the uh, this horrible history that all of us associate with the the name of the, of the character. and um Hollis, it was Hollis's idea actually to try to use, uh, to imitate the way a black audience talks to a movie. Um, you know, For those of you who have never uh, <laughs> gone to a movie with a black audience, I encourage you to do so. As, uh, it's
3: very loud. It's, it's very, 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 very loud.
4: And it's call and response. And so we decided to do a call and response technique with the uh oh, here he comes now, you know, don't, don't go down those steps, don't go up those steps. Well, and I was, we yeah, decided I was, to do that.
3: I was teaching it, or writing the bulk of the annotations with Skip while well, teaching an African American literature class in Mississippi with a, a, a number of uh, very loud black men in the class. Who had never read the book before, who were not English majors, and would call out all the time. I mean, that book, among other things, and saying, you know, what's going on there? Why is she calling him that? And, you know, so I felt like a lot of the, my responses, uh, a lot of our annotations were speaking to a person who wasn't a scholar, who was being turned off by the book, was being turned off by the sort of woolly haired imps language, by the overt sentimentality who perhaps, well as you've found, have come to like the book, your students, but need a little (laughs) hand-holding.
4: And it's hard going. I mean, there is a lot lot of wooly-headed N-words in this book.
3: Yeah, and there's a lot
7: of preaching, Mm -hmm. a lot of very um, sentimental, Victorian, um, we women are the carriers of the highest feelings, and when I'm at my best, I will bestow these These qualities of tenderness and sensitivity onto the Negro, and perhaps that's his gift. And but these things, which leads me actually to my next question: they they are they both sum up and then explode into the culture. Um, Talk a little about um, this enormous range of illustrations you've got, because it you know part of what happens with this book is you know it becomes a talking, walking, multimedia. Phenomenon, you know, uh, it, it lives in minstrel shows, in cartoons, in dramas, in movies. You know, every actor from you know, or playwright from Clifford Odets to D.W. Griffith does a, plays in it at some point. I mean, it's it's sure. amazing I mean, or a Director.
4: I mean, yeah. this book never met a genre that it, it's right. Right. <laughs> it right. didn't like her. Didn't That's like right. it. Yeah, exactly. it was just extraordinary. In fact, there's a fascinating um, set of um, exchanges between Stowe and her publisher about the royalty rate. I mean, as you know, this the, became the, the greatest selling novel in the, the history of the novel uh, overnight, I mean, within a month. And Stowe had been talked into taking a 10% royalty rather than a 20% royalty. And the uh, Jewett was the publisher, and he said, yes, but I'm going to take the other 10% and um, put it into advertising for musicals and for other other forms, and, and even commissioned John Greenleaf Whittier to write a poem which was set to music about the death of little Eva. And actually, it's not clear. I mean, it was a publisher's hustle. Bob Wilde tried the same thing on me. <laughs> uh, but my agent wouldn't go for that. But um, they were exceedingly successful in transforming this book into other genres right away. Yeah. By the time she sailed for England, within a a year of its publication. It had sold a million and a half copies. And there were already um, musical forms uh, emerging. And and 500,000 women had signed, in the UK, had signed a petition, 500,000 protesting slavery, uh, awaiting, and this petition awaited Harriet Beecher Stowe's arrival um, in England. Just amazing, we can't imagine how hot this book was, and, and how many forms it took. So we decided that we wanted to um, include a lot of the visual images. A
3: look at yeah,
4: sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we Let's did a lot of research. We used the um, Image of the Black and Western Art Project, which is located at Harvard. Karen Dalton, who's unfortunately ill, did a lot of the, the research for this. And we were able to find, uh, Hollis, why don't you walk them through?
3: Well, this one. Uh Kind of one of the more interesting ones with uh, because Emmeline, who was uh, a slave, well, I should stop this one, stop this one. Well, here's actually a good one to stop with for a while. Um, Eva yeah. and Topsy, uh, go to the This, now, this next is week. the one by the French, yeah, a woman artist, uh, isn't it? Louisa Corbeau, yeah, and they're among the they're they're kind of
7: gorgeous, actually. they're beautiful, yeah. yeah.
3: In this one, she's uh, Emmeline who ends up uh, at the, on the plantation uh, with Simon Legree at the end, who is light-skinned here, uh, extraordinarily so. I mean, you see the, the images uh, in a range of, uh, of color. I guess this is a little bit more uh, solemn than the Little Rascals version. <laughs> <laughs> This one's uh, uh, the Classics comic book version from 1953.
4: Which is a bit riskier, I believe, than. Uh,
3: yeah, that's uh, I love that one. And the same in- image here, but. Um, <laughs> oh, that is, that is.
6: great, yeah.
3: This one we found actually. Uh, <laughs> Isn't that great? <laughs> it's actually. <laughs> And it's actually called Condoleezza Rice c- crossing crossing the ice. Um, and I and I called him up, uh, Elliot Banfield, to ask you know if we could use this for his his book. And he, I think he was a little surprised. That he, um, made us pay full price for it. Uh, uh, this is one of the. Um, darker, not physically, images of uh, Topsy. Usually, she gets romanticized uh, in some of the later images. But here is actually a a little bit more uh, as Stowe would have, uh, I think, intended. We see a whole uh, range of, this is the, oh, this is little Eva as Chelsea Clinton. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But you see Tom growing and, and growing young and growing old in various um, ways in some of these images here. He actually looks a little bit virile, but he has uh, gray hair and he's uh, some distance away from uh, little Eva, oh, this is kind of out of order, he's dying here, but he, he's gone back to being very, very manly as we can see. Mm-hmm. Um, and earlier on this is the other uh, image. Uh, again, uh, Many of these images, uh, the illustrators strive to make sure that when Tom is in proximity with uh, little Eva, um, it is not uh, provocative of any way. Here when he first meets her, let me go back to that, uh, he's virile but we don't really know what's going on under the water. Uh, but this is characteristic of, much of many of the later uh, 19th century images. This is a cover image um, where when Eva is, as in the early at Hammett Billings uh, images, close to him, I think the word is dandling on his knee, uh, that he becomes very old. and has this sort of fringe of white hair that we saw uh, in the... Uh, this one's a little bit dark, but much the same here. The fringe of white hair that became char- so characteristics that we saw little uh, rascals doing it. And again, how safe is he there? And the text
4: worries about his safeness. Um, Ophelia asks, I mean, how can you let your child, you know, hang around this, hang on to this black man? I mean, kiss him, hug him. and. Um, uh, he responds that, well, he's just like an old dog, so you wouldn't mind uh, your child petting an old dog. But the first time that the sexual, well, implications of their relationship hit me over the head, I was in um, an antiquarian shop, and it was a post, old postcard, a trade card, uh, from probably the 1940s and 1950s, which I stupidly didn't buy. And it was a virile black man uh, coming out of the ocean, carrying this blonde-haired, blue-eyed woman in a sheer um, nightgown, and uh, she was dripping wet and and the caption was, Uncle Tom's Cabin. And I went, I have to read that book again.
3: (laughs) Uh, I just had a couple other ones here, this one I had on while you were talking, because it seemed apropos, (laughs) because he famously doesn't drink throughout the entire thing. And then this is sort of the most famous image, the postcard that one sees everywhere, titled Uncle Tom, an old-fashioned southern Negro, uh, who is not at all uh, like what, what Stowe wanted. Well, actually, I should see this one. is kind of my favorite one. You can't see it very well, but he's got a really nice gleam in his eye.
4: <laughs> okay, thank you, Hollis. Okay.
2: Marco, I was wondering if you could talk about the fact your work has been so much about dissecting images and what Uncle Tom's cabin has given us is a catalog of images that have lived on in a way. And on and on. And on. And
7: mutated wildly.
2: Uh, Well, you know, Skip and
7: Hollis have have presented um, our our Uncle Tom, um, Uncle Thomas. Um, You have Topsy and Eva are very fascinating to me because Eva, really, as this little, blonde, exquisite Victorian child, um, you know, I suppose you could say she's connected to Dickens's little Nell and all of that, but she really becomes a kind of um, pedophiliac pin-up mm-hmm. girl, you know. She absolutely becomes, as the shows take her over and, you know, movies and all of that, she becomes this little, you know, adorable, sexualized figure who is simultaneously so innocent um topsy of course becomes you know the little piccaninny and the, the the dancing singing this natural talent and the reproach of every you know young black woman um, you know ever ever to be raised uh, but topsy is the unbounded spirit of black talent but also the the black with no parentage the wild dangerous creature. Um, Topsy and Eva um, show up in all sorts of strange places. They show up um, in Marlena uh, Dietrich's um, dressing room in Morocco. They're her little fetish objects. They show up on the keychain of a child molester in a Chester Himes novel. Um, Shirley Temple, um, to my mind, embodies the, the you know, fusion uh-huh. of Topsy because she can dance and sing and she's very vivacious and she's got Eva's little curls uh-huh. and you're not supposed to um, feel sexual towards her but she quickly becomes the best-selling actress above the Ginger Rogerses, the Dietrichs, uh-huh. the Garbos in Hollywood and Graham Greene writes a piece pointing out, you know, dear God, how sexy she is. Then she gets <laughs> mated with... Um, Bill Robinson, mm-hmm. uh, Bojangles, um, who was a kind of Uncle Tom. And it turns out that the man who suggested that they be paired is none other than D.W. Griffith. Mm. Now, <laughs> so, so you no know, Birth of a Nation has come out. What did, what did um, Wilson say? Um, History wait.
4: Written with lightning, right?
7: There we go. That's yeah. come out four years before right. this wonderful fact you just unearthed—that Uncle Tom is mm-hmm. used for the first time. So clearly, this dynamic, you know, mm-hmm. is going on. Um, I think that Griffith is trying to outdo Eliza's by this time. You know, fabulous flight across the ice when he has Lily and Gish floating down the ice flows, You know, in way down east. So there are all these <laughs> subterranean. Uh, things going on it's still being turned into plays and and cassie you know is is the the dazzling mulatto but i would actually want to ask you two to talk more about sex in this book because it does seem to me that cassie you know the Mm. angry bitter mulatto um she actually she almost runs away with the book she she had sex Mm -hmm. you know she is full of rage and anger she's wildly moody she's incredibly clever um she's almost a villainess, but she's also a heroine Mm -hmm. and she and in a funny way topsy represent um this sort of unbounded female psyche topsy is created right after um pearl in Mm -hmm. uh, the scarlet letter Mm -hmm. you know so you know they're the ones who in some way represent this undomesticated female anger that harriet beecher stowe as a as a middle-class virtuous Christian woman can't, I think, you know, express fully.
4: No, I think what you said is absolutely spot on. In fact, um, we tend to forget that Tom dies protecting two black women. Thank you. You know, I mean, how, how bad is this? <laughs> Uncle Tom, you will recall, um, is beaten to death because he won't say where Cassie and, and Emmeline are, and they're hiding up in the attic.
7: Let me ask you a question, as to as to scholars, though. Is that because your footnotes also point out all the mixed motives and you know emotions and the voice of Stowe, whom you could strangle one moment and then cheer the next? Mm-hmm. Is it entirely the responsibility of the readers that one forgets that with Tom, or is does it also lie in his, rep, you know, his creation, his representation as a character. You, you know, you, you've talked, You, in a sense, you've touched on it with the sexuality that yeah. is
3: muted but not. Well, he has to stay a little bit diff- distance from her. Leslie Fiedler talks about how she's very much of a Mary Magdalene figure, this sort of long hair, fallen woman that he saves in a way and brings into the family structure and I think the way Stowe brings her into the family structure at the end with all the coincidences with everybody (laughs) being related to one another so Mm -hmm. therefore they're safe and their past indiscretions are then forgiven and I think that's part of the distancing that you're talking about that then we we see him as acting as not only as a Christ figure but as somebody to you, you forget the plot that happened up to that point. He's mm-hmm. dead. Everybody else is happy, and so he mm-hmm. must have done something. What was it again? Mm-hmm. Right. Or he, or he but, must have been too weak to live, even though he's a Christ.
4: Right. Okay, yeah. But she, Cassie, uses her charms, as it were, to protect Emily, yes. because he buys this other tragic mulatto meli-
8: to
6: <laughs> to, yes.
4: to, to, um, to abuse. Simon Legree does. Yeah. And Cassie, who's in and out of his bed. Um, goes back into his bed, in effect, in order to protect this fifteen-year-old. I think she's about fifteen years year old, and then concocts this brilliant strategy of going up into the attic, pretending that they've escaped to the, through to the swamp, but they're really hiding up in the attic. And they so they manipulate the trope of uh, the madwoman in the attic by an inverted by um, pretending to be ghosts, representing themselves as ghosts, and spooking, as it were, Simon Legree. Yeah. So it's a very clever um, representational strategy going on with, with Stowe. Be taking conventions and turning them on their head. Yeah. Yeah. But there's no question Cassie's sexy to me. Uh, I mean, she was a, a voluptuously <laughs> sexy woman in the text, and I noticed that right away. <laughs>
7: But yeah, she's whereas a- mulatto, the tragic mulatto tends to be, because she's tragic, because she's, well, she's genteel, and yet, you know, she's too good for her station, mm-hmm. and she's always proving that black women are not
4: low. But think about her in relationship to Eliza Harris, though. Yeah. Eliza's not, um, when... Yeah,
7: Eliza has some sex, too, doesn't she? But yeah. the sex
4: is represented in the the, the, the gaze of the slave trader. That's true. But Cassie yes. represents her own sexuality. Exactly. She's very That's much right. in control. That's right. And... Um, and she manipulates Legree. She's brilliant, and she, she ends up by escaping by pretending to be a ghost. Quite remarkable. But tragically, uh, those actions lead to the death of our hero, Uncle Tom. But it's a good question that you ask. I, I mean, How would you change it? If you were trying to uh, make a hero for the ages, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, you know, I keep thinking, who is the audience for this book? So we could go to Bishop T.D. Jake's church, right? And everybody in the church could read Uncle Tom's Cabin, and Uncle Tom would be a hero. I mean, he's the Christ figure. He dies to save these two black women. I mean, it's quite wonderful. But if you try it with a group of um, uh, hip-hop-oriented adolescents, it's harder to pull that off. It's harder to represent him as a hero, to recuperate him from degradation back into the, the ranks it's, of the heroes.
7: Uh, us back to some of what you point out. Both of you, um, the link with Baldwin, you talk more than once about the various homoerotic threads also going on. You know, partly set up because he is passive and feminized, or seems passive and is a feminine Christ figure. So could
3: you talk a little more about that? Good well, bit. he is, I mean, he's, and Leslie Fiedler also calls him a white mother he's the best mother in the book, that he's sweet, mm-hmm. that he's kind, he's feminine, he's soft, he's covered with flowers in the whole second part of the book. He takes and, care of everyone. And he takes care of everybody. And it, it is, to get back to the Cassie question for a second, it's the one place in the book where you see um, Stowe's Christianity not being enough for the plot. Because exactly. Cassie's yeah, Cassie's uh, supernatural c- concerns, her, the ghost stories, the um Stowe having uh, Legree think there's something magical about Eva's locks of hair, mm-hmm. that Stowe has to reach for something that's out of the Christian discourse exactly. for a minute, and then brings it all back in. And, and she's has, beside herself with happiness. And that again, of time. at that moment, you know, when when Tom dies, he doesn't die in Cassie's arms. He doesn't mm. die in uh, Emmeline's arms. He doesn't die in Lucy's arms. He dies in George Shelby's arms. Right. And you know. And without
4: Eva's locks of hair.
3: Exactly. so right. What's up with that? That's yeah, my students would say. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah,
4: yeah. Too dangerous. Too potent. That's what's up with that.
2: Yeah. yeah. So that you know, really brings us to how do we read this novel now? I mean, you teach this as well, Margot, um, as Hollis does. So how do you imagine that with all of that? How do we? How are we able to read this novel now and understand it within contemporary culture and history?
9: Oh,
7: doesn't Hollis want to go? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's it's very difficult because if students are reading, I mean, I I think this this flawed thing as a novel that um that Henry James with his usual suppressed sense of sexuality called <laughs> an enormous flying fish of a novel. <laughs> um, you know, it's extraordinary. Um, I think it is a kind of national epic, don't mm-hmm. you? But, oh, exactly. you know, but your national epics aren't necessarily your best novels. Um, it came out around the time of Moby Dick, one year after, two years after The Scarlet Letter. So you have to, I think you partly have to teach it as this cacophonous. Thing that's busting, breaking all forms for one thing. You know, it's almost like you know a, a, an opera. You know, it, there's there's there all of these characters with their different voices. She has a wonderful ear,
4: great ear for, di- for you know, black, uh, better and than white. Better, you know? but better than black on uh, the authors of the slave narratives. So if you um, look at William Wells Brown's dialect, I know
7: it's a little it's lame. terrible. Yeah, and yeah, hers yeah. is um, kind of no, hers is absolutely spot on. No, she's she, got New englanders She's mm-hmm. got. You know, working class New Englanders Mm -hmm. and Southerners. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. And she's got this wonderful secular sense. I mean, the book opens with these two men of different classes Mm -hmm. smoking, talking about money, property, and it's a... You know, it's this kind of seductive scene. Mm, But she's a snob. She is a, of course. What middle class white woman, (laughs) what middle class woman of the nineteenth century is not going to be a snob? She's absolutely a snob. And she's—you're right. She's too easily snobbish about the slave trader. But Mm -hmm. the problem with with this book is it's so easy to feel superior to it Mm -hmm. because she exposes her flaws at every moment. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, because she is inside it. She's a participant. She doesn't have that full novelistic, you know, um, I'm I'm a master. I don't even know that she wanted to. But that really is the problem. How do you get them to acknowledge that everything this woman is talking about, um, you know, from struggling with what we think of as racial traits even mm-hmm. though we claim now that race doesn't exist you know to these strange marital triangles you know the father of the slaveholder eva's father who is clearly in love with his daughter and not with his wife mm-hmm. you know and sure. you know how do you get them to see all of this complicated you know human the american family the, you know the black family the white family this geographical sweep from north to south um, and not let them feel superior, that's the problem. Or yeah. angry
4: because of, because of the, uh, the contextual racism. Yeah. I mean, there's not any time a black character comes into the novel, you know that they're black because they're called woolly-haired or black-skinned or... Yes,
7: Ebony, uh, Yeah. Yes. And, and
4: it's not a, a very polite thing. No, it's
7: not. For all of her snobbery, she had bad manners. had <laughs> yeah, bad manners.
4: But if, you could, if we could persuade a generation of black students to read it as an allegory of a, a different time in our people's history, time of deferred gratification, time of Very uh, much so. oh, the time of self-sacrifice. Yeah. You know, a time when by deferred gratification, I didn't mean it in that way. I, wasn't I meant it
3: thinking I, that way. I meant
4: it in um, <laughs> that you know, we our people had a future. And no matter how bad, you know, we were the Israelites, you know, we were the, the, the mm. children of God. We were coming out of Egypt. And no matter how bad it looked, there was a better day coming. Yeah. And we just had to believe. And you had to make this crazy sacrifice in order for us to happen 150 years later. Um, and also, just everybody in the world wanted to read this book.
7: Which is so
4: Everybody in the world wanted to read about this black man. Who was willing to sacrifice himself, yes. um, you know, for this larger ideal of Christianity? Yeah, that's
7: uh, true. Who was better than any other person in the world? You yeah. know, I mean, he really was an absolutely superior, morally human being. Right. Oh. yeah. No, it's also. I mean, it, it's another chapter in America's obsession with the figures of black mm-hmm. people. You know, and that's interesting too. Mm-hmm. And it was it's the, one of the first potent chapter. The opening it, chapter. It's the opening chapter. That's right.
4: But it's very much too uh, about um um the escape of black women. Um I mean Eliza escapes, yeah, yeah, um that's right. Cassie and Emmeline escape. Well George escapes. George uh, escapes. George Split, escapes. But Uncle Tom doesn't. I mean unlike all of the ma- the narrators of the slave narratives,
7: This right? is very true.
4: That he is the one who stays back on the plantation. He's the one who is, is who picks the extra cotton for the slaves who are weak Absolutely. and he's the one who's terminated at the end yep. for his principles. Mm-hmm. So it's very, very um a conscious narrative, conscious slave narrative in that one.
3: Well we used to get into we had uh, some very nice arguments about it. at what point in time would um would 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 Tom raise his fist. Yeah, right. Mm.
4: If little Evo, if Simon Legree had attacked little Eva.
3: He might have,
4: I he think might that have Tom been. would have lost his Chris, Christian principles and defended. Do you think that's
7: reasonable? Uh, yes, but I can't imagine the circumstances under which Simon LeRee, right. unless he was molesting her, would have attacked her.
4: Yeah, but that's the only yeah, I think that, way yeah. I can think yeah, of Tom think that's actually true. fighting back. Which drove Malcolm X crazy. Yeah.
0: <laughs> It did.
4: When you read Malcolm yeah. Banks' speech about Martin Luther King, it just—it's this figure, the idea that you wouldn't fight back, it just is—it's unmanly to him, and in a different way than Baldwin. Baldwin talks. Baldwin talks about sexlessness. Malcolm talks about masculinity, about turning the other cheek, and but he's anti-Christian anyway.
6: He is,
7: and also you know also this is a woman's novel. Harriet Beecher Stowe is is. You know, hmm. trumpeting in her you know in her own way, um, you know, the the purity, the the power of female religious self and female secular, implicitly self-sacrifice, moral virtue. You know, it it really is a struggle between the so called male soul and female soul, hmm. that novel, don't you think?
4: Yeah, but that's what Joe Baldwin crazy yes, about. Yes indeed. Because Tom becomes a feminine soul
7: yes, that's by right.
4: not being masculine, quote unquote. Yeah. Except He is masculine. He dies to protect these two. Women. It's true. So it's a, an ironic form of um, feminization, if indeed it is feminization. I interrupt you. No, I'm no, sorry. no.
3: There was just, it's been uh, the book has uh, is getting a sort of new uh, life in uh, by there's a, a, a fellow named uh, Wellington Boone who is on the promise keepers circuit, um, and he talks about this oh book no. as an excellent example of masculinity. And he says this is this is exhibit one of black masculinity. The name of his book is um, Your Wife Is Not Your Mama. God, um, and you know, I I, I well, looked in the index of the book to make this sure. Is its, this is its latest incarnation yes. uh, in uh, mass yeah. culture.
7: Okay, and now it you
3: says, you know, if, if 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 being a man means laying down your life to protect your women, I'm an Uncle Tom. If if being a man means you know be, selling yourself down down into slavery to protect your family. I'll be an Uncle Tom, Mm -hmm. takes a long list of it, and apparently, I don't know how it's selling, the book, but. (laughs) Um.
4: Well, if we could get on the Promise Keeper circuit, Bob, that'd be a heavy (laughs)
3: thing. (laughs) What was
2: your most interesting discovery in the research for this book? I mean, you all have sort of really copious, fantastic notes, and there's so much you seem to unearth around the varying reactions and analysis. What was for both of you or either of you separately? Do you want to start?
3: Well, actually, the the funniest thing is something I ought to have known anyway, which uh, I, I learned actually in reading Joan Hendricks' uh, excellent uh, biography of Stowe, is that Stowe, uh, in July, I think, of 1851, when she had started the book, uh, wrote to Frederick Douglass uh, mm-hmm. to say something like, you know, can you help me out here with a little he, research? She, uh, uh,
4: yeah, he, she wanted Douglass to describe what a real plantation looked look like. Uh, <laughs> Harriet Beecher Stowe spent 17 days... In Kentucky, on a, a slave plantation, that was it. And, and so she wrote to him saying, "I'm writing this thing in the national era. I need a little research."
3: And uh, there's, uh, as uh, I think Robert Septo said, there's no, uh, there's no um, record of that he wrote back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That was my favorite.
4: Well, I think <laughs> that, um, you know, the the uh, Stowe's book was so popular, it, it upset so many people who were pro-slavery. That all these people accused her of making it up in particular exaggerating the mm-hmm. horrors of slavery mm-hmm. so she immediately produced a book that was called the key to Uncle Tom's Cabin mm-hmm. which full of all these documents very difficult book to read um, and she said that she had based Uncle Tom the uh, uh, the characterization of Uncle Tom on a black man who had written a slave narrative mm-hmm. Josiah Henson mm-hmm. and Josiah Henson was a real person and he escaped uh, from slavery in 1849 I believe and he escaped with his family mm-hmm. but there's no evidence, I mean, if you read Josiah Henson's book and you read Uncle Tom's Cabin, there's no evidence to me that uh, that she is modeling Uncle Tom after Josiah Henson. So she's being very opportunistic. She had to cover herself in some sort of way. So there's Josiah Henson, so what's Josiah Henson do? He publishes a new edition of the book, The Real Uncle Tom, and, re- <laughs> <laughs> and rewrites his life to conform to the portrait of Uncle Tom's Cabin. Now, I think only in America, as Don <laughs> King would say, could this possibly happen.
3: And also, the the other funny thing was, in in terms of the cultural afterlife, the uh, book, the famous children's book, Black Beauty, Mm -hmm. uh, was subtitled in its early editions, The Uncle Tom's Cabin of the Horse.
4: (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. I didn't know, I didn't know that um, Douglas, I knew about, from Bob Septo's book, that she had asked... um, douglas to do a little research for but i didn't know that douglas had praised the book over and over again in his newspaper frederick Douglass's newspaper and he talked about how authentic its representation of slavery was and much later 100 years later black people would say well it's not authentic or there were no black people really were like this but black people at the time thought that her portrayal of black slaves and these are jealous angry you know mean to each other uh, um, sadistic uh, black black relations represented in in that book
7: but not only not only but, yeah but, but plenty. In,
4: yeah plenty mm-hmm. uh, showing the, the the way that slavery debases <gasps> mm-hmm. but you would I didn't know if contemporary black people would find that
7: yes you know,
4: because you don't find that in the slave narratives
7: no
4: you don't, don't find do. it in the slave right. narratives
7: wow. that's right you do find it in Harriet Jacobs bless her heart well, yeah, but it, she's you yeah, know that's H- some Harriet Jacobs become.
4: makes herself noble by showing the ignobility of oh, the, the field hands, yes. right? She says we were and always very special.
7: That's true. Mm-hmm. My, you and know, and my grandfather spiteful, jealous. Yeah, right. House house people, but yeah. Yeah,
4: her special. grandfather was a carpenter. That's you know, we crazy. had a house. I could hide yeah. in the attic for seven years, and and when you think about it, James Weldon Johnson was absolutely right. I mean, that the in Harriet Jacobs, um, eighteen sixty one slave narrative, that. Um, uh, um, Hiding in the Attic comes right out of – it's a revision of Cassie and Emmeline hiding in the the garret. They even use the same word, the garret. It's true.
7: Though, though, this is interesting also. Um, Harriet Jacobs wrote Harriet Beecher Stowe Mm. asking, you know, could you write an introduction? Could you help me with my book? I'm working on it. And Harriet Beecher Stowe wrote back. Well, maybe I can use some of your life in my next book. And and, and Harriet Jacobs was (laughs) furious, (laughs) exactly. And then, though still angling, Mm -hmm. um, asked if maybe Harriet Beecher Stowe would let her young daughter, who was going to school (laughs) in New England, Mm -hmm. go abroad with her. Mm -hmm. And Harriet Beecher Stowe wrote back. Well, I think that might get her, make her a little too proud, mm-hmm. you know, being admired by so much in Europe. So, you know, this probably drove Harriet Jacobs to, Crazy. in fact, go on and finish that her book. Yeah, that. Thank Of course. Yeah. Yeah.
4: But yeah. Douglas, too, Douglas had an exchange, with, an interesting exchange with Harriet Beecher Stowe. Douglas, um, uh, ever the capitalist, Douglas uh, wanted a cut of the royalties to build a vocational school oh. for African Americans, and she promised that she would do this. And then she withdrew her uh, pledge that she would fund his school. But Frederick Douglass, for those of you who haven't read it for a while, uh, it ends with this long letter from George Harris to to you, dear reader, about the wonders of colonization, about how the, the freed slaves should go back to Liberia or go to Haiti and form their own nation and then advocate for... The uh, their enslaved brother and, and, and brothers and sisters still in the South, and it really irritated Frederick Douglass, and that's the only part that he didn't like about the book. <laughs> he said, "Dear Madam, we uh, we were born here and we are going to remain here." But Stowe thought that the solution, like Abraham Lincoln did, remember that the solution to the pro- the, the Negro problem of the problem of slavery, was colonization, meaning you ship all these people back to Africa or you ship them to Latin America, get them out of the country. I mean, it wasn't. Uh, uh, we shall overcome mm-hmm. uh, miscegenation in heaven that Harry Beecher Stowe was advocating. Right.
2: Right. Well, I would love to open this to our audience, if you all are open to that at this point. And there are two microphones on either side of the room. We are recording, and I am going to ask that all of you who are asking questions, that you actually ask a question, <laughs> and um, that you speak into the microphone. There's a question in the back. We can start on either side. I guess you, the microphone holders. You guys are gonna have to decide because I.
4: I wonder if we turn this thing.
2: Do you want? To go oh, push it back. Side? Over? Yeah. No. Ooh, if we could turn done. it up. Up? Oh. Right. oh nice. I think that's more that hot. Huh? Yeah. Thank you.
4: Thanks. All right. Thank
2: you. Look, that's not too hot.
4: No, I need it. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was wondering if
1: that was the answers. No. <laughs> <clears throat> you said that your first introduction to Uncle Tom's Cabin was through the little rascals. Mm-hmm. And for me, oddly enough, it was the king and I, where they actually do a staging of it. Right. And then use as this whole launching point to convince the king that slavery is wrong and all these things. Do you just have any did that resonate at all with you? Do you have any comments on that movie and how it was used in that story context?
4: Um, yeah, that's not how I first encountered the, the, the story, but I thought it was very powerful. I mean, I'm not sure what you're asking.
1: Yes, part the of the of story through other forms of literature,
4: mm-hmm. how that was. The story within the story. I thought it was very effective. And, and the use of it for that message. Mm-hmm. Well, you know,
7: it is the first time, first version of it I ever saw. and really? I was in. Yeah, I was enraptured by that movie, and I think, you know, it's an... It's beautifully done and staged but it seems to me that it also hooked up in the 50s with this um, ability to um slightly for black people could slightly aestheticize and fetishize their suffering through certain asian Theatrical representations, I'm thinking of this. And The King and I, I'm thinking of Sayonara
0: mm-hmm.
7: with Marlon Brand. I'm thinking, you know, a little later of Flower Drum Song, you know. But, you know, there are a number of movies where there was, you know, the the Asian white cross, you know, mm-hmm. and it And there was always a, you know, all the black people I knew, there was a kind of, this is respectful and it's subtextually erotic. And it was very aesthetic. So you could have that distance. And that's that seems to me an absolutely exquisite example. Though. But
4: you're saying that white people.
7: I'm talking about black that people. black
4: people but we weren't in control of those
7: movies. N- no, but I I mean as audience members. Oh, I see. We often I didn't mean we oh, fetishize and aestheticize uh-huh. as makers. Um, I think it was a very useful. Oh, absolutely. Um, way for us to yeah but you know you could you could think that you know the movie makers were all you know they were dealing with you know that it had to do with orientalism imperialism but you know maybe those did stand in in the 50s as uh, tropes larger tropes for, for racism
3: but there's also something very interesting about that characterization in the in the musical at least that it's it's a harem that's putting it on, you know. Yes, <laughs> and I, I have not quite figured out what to do with that. Why, you know, it's a group of people that is not part of the, you know, Christian heterosexual marriage uh, thing that are finding something in that. Um. But Anna is a kind of Harriet
7: Beecher Stowe figure. Oh, also. absolutely. Yeah.
4: Right, and a Mrs. Bird from the novel. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. absolutely. And it's a, a dark complected bald-headed king uh, yes, it is. was very fouling, though. <laughs> <laughs>
2: question.
3: We'll go to that side. Um, you spoke about the desexualization of the Uncle Tom character, <clears throat> but I also was wondering about Topsy and how it seemed that in the life after the novel and some of the minstrel shows, she became this kind of genderless creature. Mm-hmm. And actually, the Little Rascals, the Farina character and the Buckwheat character, which was kind of like a Topsy Character, except oh, yeah. it was played by a boy. Right. So I was just curious. Oh, if buckwheat had- is
4: is definitely Neo Topsy. I, mean, <laughs> I mean, like for his hair. I mean, when I think of Topsy, I think of buckwheat and and.
3: But why the the gender confusion? The gender in, in the bending. depiction of the black child.
4: Um, I don't know. What do you think?
7: She's pre-adolescent. She really is a child, and nothing about her is. Ladylike, girlish,
0: oh, yes. yeah. in
7: any way, um, mm-hmm. you know. She really is kind of terrifying that way. She's, she has no physical charms. She is wildly uncivilized. She says <laughs> anything, you know. And she, I never was born. No mother. No father. Um,
4: she'll steal. She'll lie.
7: Yeah. So I think in that way, she's, a, you know, she's set up to break through those, break across that.
4: But she ends up a lady in New England.
9: She
7: does, alas, yes. You know,
4: I mean, she. I thought you were asking about buckwheat. Well, yeah. I mean, I. You know, why why would buckwheat not be a girl in The Little Rascals? Sort of. Um, I mean, how many girls were there in, in Little rascal Was it Marla, Darla, Darla? Darla, Darla was the only one. Yeah,
3: right? I think so. Well, in, in that Little Rascals one, we, they saw that Topsy, I mean, that the same, uh, same little kid had to play both Uncle Tom and Topsy because his little sister wasn't showing up.
4: Yeah, I had to do that in my school, too. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
7: just for the record, originally, um, the, the performance history is that Topsy, you know, Little Evil was always played by an exquisite Young child in the mm-hmm. theater company, you know, um, or a, an older pretty woman. But t- in the early days, Topsy was always played by a grown white woman who was considered the, the broad comic in the company. You know, so it became the way to act out and be naughty and wild mm-hmm. and nasty. And then it crosses gender. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: You were talking about wanting to introduce this novel to a contemporary African-American audience. Mm -hmm. And in the last five years, a couple of prominent African-American writers have introduced the novel. Charles Johnson introduced an edition in 2002. Christopher Paul Curtis, the Newbery Award-winning author, introduced one.
4: Daryl Pinkney.
0: I was wondering how you saw your um, edition in relation to those editions and what you're trying to do differently.
4: Well, they did do an annotated edition. That was the principal difference. we wanted to create a parallel text really with between a, the visual history of this the um the book with the um critical reception of the book, and then through our annotations, talk about how black people had changed their minds about this book and to do it with a, a lot more patience and detail than the people that you name could possibly do it just given the limitations of their form uh but I think daryl pinkney's um we're uh, in Charles Johnson. I don't want to be <laughs> misquoted. I think all the those guys did a great job <laughs> uh, introducing un- Uncle Tom's Cabin.
3: Um, I'm a high school English teacher, and you were talking about, I'm very interested to hear you talk about the troubles that you have teaching Uncle Tom's Cabin. Certainly, the 19th century American novel that deals with race that does frequently get taught at the high school level is Huckleberry Finn. And I wondered if, I mean, a a huge amount's been written on that, but I wonder if you could just comment on how you would maybe teach those two books together, or whether you think that one would take the place of the other. I mean, they speak so much to similar themes and yet are such wildly different novels.
6: Hmm. (laughs) (laughs)
7: Margaret <laughs> Marga? <laughs> uh, um, I would not replace one with the other. I think teaching them together would be um, wildly interesting in fact both right you know uh, ostensibly it would be the sentimentality of Stowe, you know and the the comedy you know, but with that backbone of seriousness of Twain, but actually it would break down differently. Stowe can be extremely funny um, always when she's creating, you know, kind of um, mean, mean male characters Mm -hmm. or ones who are, um, you know, sort of the, she was an admirer of Byron, who had that kind of like Augustine, you know, Byronic
0: um,
7: Mm -hmm. note. So, and Twain, uh, I don't think I can pull this off, meaning you can't call comedy that becomes too too cheap which parts of that book do you can't call that a form of sentimentality though i wish i could pull off that comparison but mm-hmm. you know he does maybe a certain kind of um of, of comedy that doesn't do it's too you know it's too easy it's too um sitcomy that deserves this that deserves as much hard cold thought as we have been giving sentimentality and sentimental tradition
4: between huck and jim
7: um i mean more when no i mean more when tom tom sawyer comes back into the novel and you know even the um those long passages between the duke and the whatever you know when when twain does his often brilliant comic set pieces and you it gets thrown off that would be very interesting to look at Um, Reader response, you know, I think the whole uh, the whole Huckleberry Finn dispute has gotten pretty coarse. Um, but the fact is, there are moments um, when uh, I think, as a black reader, you find it excruciating, as with Uncle Tom. And then, boom, you know, you're somewhere else moments later. And really tracking that. By the way, they became friends in later life. Stowe and Twain, um, as she confessed, she had an unsanctified liking for slang, and they would write these, <laughs> you know, snappy letters, and they mm-hmm. were neighbors that was mm-hmm. right. So, you know, I'm just, you've just gotten me thinking about it, but I think it would be amazing to pair them, because it would say very, so much also about the male and female literary traditions.
4: And I spend so much time defending Huckleberry Finn, that I wouldn't ever, ever throw it out yeah, of the, uh, yeah. the canon, because there's so many parent groups Particularly, black parent groups that want to throw it out of the high school curriculum because the word nigger appears. And that kind oh, of. Then
7: they sure don't want Uncle Tom's Cow. And then Uncle Tom's
4: Cow. I know, but we, what we have to do is help people to understand yes. that um, just because the word nigger appears doesn't mean we have to throw the book out. Yes. I mean, we can use these as teaching opportunities, and yes. we can make a thousand one justifications, but for goodness sake, yeah. we can't. Um, it's, lend ourselves a censorship.
7: No, it's, it's not leaving the way Paul Mooney thinks it's going to. No,
3: no, 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 no,
7: no.
3: no. Huh. Worry, no. I have a right here.
5: Um, I was just wondering how relevant you might think it that Harriet Beecher Stowe had other interests and other uh, accomplishments let's say beyond uncle tom i know we're talking about uncle tom but to me she was one of my the great resources when i was writing about the 1848 revolution mm-hmm. in paris i mean she wrote one of the richest and most seemingly objective descriptions of uh, what happened when the Louvre was under fire from the revolutionaries. In other words, she had a pretty sophisticated political understanding of what was going on in revolutionary situations uh, abroad. You know, she was was a very astute um, critic and viewer of um, things apart from say her writing of uncle tom and i think in some way it's relevant to our understanding of the book to know that she had all these other uh interesting aspects
4: too i, I think you're right that she yeah. um i mean there are many comparisons in the text to the hungarian revolution of 1848 uh, and she said when she's talking about george harris she's who is the mulatto who escapes and who fights i mean he shoots the white men trying to to um to capture him back into slavery, and she said, "If he were a Hungarian revolutionary, we would uh, be creating statues to this yes, guy instead it. of thinking of him as some crazy black man who's who's breaking the law by running away with his own with his own property." Stowe was part of um, one of the best things that happened to Harriet Beecher Stowe was Cincinnati, and she was part of something called the Semicolon Club, and it was it seems to be at least from from Hedrick's biography. Um, very open between the genders Uh, I don't know if that's not a very elegant sentence but men and women met uh, regularly and exchanged writing and read and critiqued each other and um, and I think that a lot of her the the, um, cosmopolitanism some friend of mine might say that you're describing in Uh, Stowe's writing comes from that time in in Cincinnati. Would you agree?
3: Yeah, and I think we tried very hard to bring some of that revolutionary discussions into the annotations where she talked about labor, where she talks about the um, various things going on in in Europe, but I think it's also fair to say that we wouldn't be talking about her were it not for this book. I mean, she was very interesting, wrote a lot of very interesting uh, later books, some a little less uninteresting than others or more (laughs) uninteresting than others, but I mean that this is the thing she is known for, and um, for that reason, probably the best repository for every other bits of research that we can do to or that somebody wants to do to, to have it hover around, around this text.
7: That you know, I would certainly teach The Pearl of Ora's Island. Um, it's you know, it's a really fine regional novel. I would probably teach Pink and White Tyranny, where she, in a sense, is but it's one of the first vicious. Well, admirably vicious critiques of a certain kind of female consumerism, and it prefigures Edith Wharton and someone like, you know, a character like Undine Sprague, for example. So, you know, she is. She's an interesting figure.
4: Hmm. Her awareness of class relations in the United States just is astonishing. Absolutely. I mean, it's like Marxian, if you, Hmm. as it were, when she's describing um, middle class life, in America, as well as the relationship between slave owners and non-slave owners, um, surprisingly, um, keen observations about economic relations in the yes, United States.
7: Yes, exactly. I guess any novel that begins with a factual discussion of money is to mm-hmm. be trusted. Don't mm-hmm. you know? yeah. <laughs> Which is a line. Is, is to be trusted or Miranda.
9: not to be trusted?
7: <laughs> <laughs> is something something honest is being told you.
9: Okay, um, I just want to say I enjoy the discussion and it has encouraged me to write a poem so probably by the end I'll write a poem but I just um Mr. Gates I um I hear that you said that how Malcolm always referred to um Martin as a Uncle Tom who would you who would you consider to be a modern day Uncle Tom and who would if we're teaching this book to if we're teaching this book to students who would we relate it to who would we have them related to because for me when I thought about it I thought about just the movie. I thought about like um, the hand that rocks the cradle. There was a little white girl and a, uh, they had a, a black man, and I, I, I kind of related that movie to Uncle Tom just in the uh-huh. sense that how he was protective over uh-huh. her. So who would you would you consider? Um, is there anybody that you would think that the student you would have the students relate to? I mean, in the sense that you would say, you know, I know some may say Colin Powell, some may even say the mayor of Jersey, but <laughs> <laughs> no,
4: no, no, the mayor of Newark. Cory Booker? No, no. But you see, I thought you were asking. Remember, I'm trying to interpret Uncle Tom as a black man who dies for these two black women. Right? Not like Clarence Thomas. (laughs) 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 So I say I'm caught because I want to critique this terrible moment in our history. When we read each other out of the race. But, you know, I can't, every time there's a Supreme Court decision about affirmative action, it drives me crazy. The black man is, you know, voting against affirmative action, so I'm a hypocrite. And I understand that. That's a problem for me. Um, As a professor, you know, I have to defend the right for my students, black or whatever, um, to come out of whatever ideological bag they want to come out of. And if anyone would call me Uncle Tom in my class, I would, you know, crush them like a bug. I'd do the best that I could. Um and I theoretically defend the right of Clarence Thomas to be Clarence Thomas. But uh, with my other black self <laughs> it's uh it's very hard for me. Uh but I can't think of that. I would not call anyone an Uncle Tom. I wouldn't do that. I've been calling Uncle Tom. Um there's a book, you know, Uncle Tom's Among Us. Cornell's in it, I'm in it. Um <laughs> You know, I don't know who else is in it. I only looked up my own name and index. <laughs> and then I looked up Cornell for company. And that made me feel a lot better. I did buy the book. <laughs> but it would be interesting for me, and I'd have to think about it. And I'd love you your could opinion, redeem but... It. What would you? Yeah, if, okay. If there were, if there who were a
7: redemptive be, possibility to that. Right.
4: Who would be the self-sacrificing, I would say, that... In, my lifetime, and again, I'm 56 years old, Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King, Malcolm was absolutely right and wrong at the same time. Martin Luther King gave his life to free black men and black women. I mean, he is the closest figure I could think of to, to Uncle Tom is depicted in this novel. And I don't want the King family coming. Don't misquote me. <laughs> Gates calls. Martin quickly, Luther King, let Uncle us Tom. Quickly
7: Gandhi, right? <laughs> yeah, that's
4: right. Just like Mahatma Gandhi. So we can right? throw, Just it like in
7: throw
3: it Thank in. Thank that's it. <laughs>
4: <laughs> I want to get invited to the, the, the memorial opening, you know. <laughs> mm. um,
8: there's been some conversation this evening about our early encounters with the novel, right? So in right. nineteen seventy six, James Baldwin talks about his first encounter with UTC. Um, he's seven or eight years old. He's reading the book obsessively, fanatically. It disturbs his mother from the South, now in Harlem. She keeps hiding the book. She finally hides it at the highest shelf above the bathtub. He climbs up there and gets it. She stops hiding the book. In 1948, James Baldwin published everybody's protest novel. He asks a question when he talks about the kind of trap of categorization, the fictive quality of race, yet it's historical persistence. He says, for those of us who are traffic in what he calls the kind of medieval morality, the virtuous, the self-righteous, and hard-boiled sentimentality of Stowe, why are we so loath to go beyond that liberal figure? And so I ask you guys, as you reconsider Stowe this evening, why, as we deal with a persistent contemporary fact of race, and we know that it's fiction, why are we returning, as Baldwin asked in that same essay, Why are we so loath, as a nation to go beyond the kind of what he calls laudable efforts of Stowe, but still ensnarled, entangled with the
4: fiction of American race? Well, your question was almost the pastiche of James Baldwin. I mean, you were very Baldwinian in the way you, 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 I'm I'm not, not, I'm not trying to flatter you, just, I I love Baldwin, I I used to imitate him all the time when I was a kid, or a teenager, and uh, that's what, the, the structure of your, your sentence was very Baldwinian. I had absolutely no idea what you just said, however. <laughs> so <laughs> I, don't, I, well, didn't, I didn't asked follow question. your well, question. He asked, Why are we so loath to go
8: beyond Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin? We're reconsidering him this e- the novel this evening. The persistent fact of race of Malcolm X, MLK. To, uh, Emmett Till confronts in American society the kind of national the quest for national innocence, the mm-hmm. way he's talking about.
4: But I think he's wrong. I think that we've we've gone far beyond Uncle Tom's Cabin okay. in terms of our first thing. We have so many black voices that have emerged since, representing race themselves since 1851. You know when it was first serialized, right? Uh, and we have Baldwin himself representing race in every. P- possible combination <laughs> and venue that you could that he could think of. A- apparently, um, I just don't think that it's true. I think that um, I think that we have confront. We haven't solved the race problem. If that's what you're asking, I think the reason we haven't solved the race problem is that it's a problem of race and class. But I, I don't think it was ever just a race problem. I think it was about economic relationships, and I think that the society through affirmative action. Decided to adjust enough so that some of us could become members of the middle class, and then that door shut, slammed shut, and we still have this vast underclass. And until we have a, a, a more direct economic analysis of the problem, I don't think that we're going to solve the, the race problem. If ever we're going to solve the race problem, because you can't solve a problem that wasn't really a problem in the first place. It was a race and class problem, or it was primarily a class problem manifesting itself as race. It's not as, as if race didn't exist, but it was about economic relationships, it was always about economic relationships, and everything else came after that. That's what I believe.
7: Are you also asking why there would be a need to go back to this text again as an emblem of certain uh, crises, um, problems we haven't?
8: with um, the, the essay by Baldwin in 48 and... Um, you mean prefer- a
7: direct engagement in by the introduction? Yeah. Exactly, exactly.
8: Yeah. So what I'm saying is, it's a part of the essay um, that says we fi- now is then we yeah. find ourselves bound first without, then within, by the nature of our categorization, yes. that society is held together by our need, by legend, myth and coercion, right? Mm-hmm. And so the, the legend, the myth, the fiction of race and class and all gender and all that kind of stuff persist. And so what, I'm, what Baldwin was asking in 1948, I'm asking his question. It's not really that complex. It's, I mean, it's a simple question. How, why are we so loath to go beyond what's being proposed by Stowe, that liberal fiction, what people say about Melville and Twain in the 19th century? Um,
7: I don't think that, I'm not sure who we is. Um, but you know, as a society, uh, yeah, we are still. But I think looking at these, those fictions, with all of the experience and knowledge that we have acquired and are acquiring uh, does make a difference. When we were reading that book before, we could never have said in the same way that you just said it, race is a fiction. Mm. Uh, we know that it is now in certain ways. And I think, you know, looking, taking the, our our own history, every part of it, and by our, I mean American, in with all of that new knowledge uh, makes a difference. I think mm-hmm. it's very dangerous to, you know, nations have psyches too, and I, just the way in people do. And you cannot simply close down um, your past. You cannot block out parts of your psyche and believe that you are simply going on. You have to find some way to rename it, reshape it, transform it. Um, that's how you get through it. I think not. You know, and then maybe past it, but we're not anywhere near yeah
4: Stowe Sto certainly didn't believe that race was a
7: fiction. Uh, no. No, not at all. No, I mean we know that in certain ways, literally, scientifically, it's a fiction. It sure. is still not a fiction functionally at all. Neither is gender, neither are economics. Well, just because so. it's
4: socially constructed doesn't mean it's exactly. not real. Exactly. <laughs> in, exactly. In some sense, so. Right. right, but it's we moved a lot, a long way from believing that. I mean, no one respectable can represent race in the way that Harriet Beecher Stowe did, as a real thing that exists in, in these sort of blocks of categories that are perpetuated biologically and be taken seriously. That's a, a, that's a hell of a transformation um, over the last century and a half and a very important one. And I think that James Baldwin played an important role in the critique of race
2: as a, as a thing. this conversation for a long time, and there it is. Um,
3: This panel is just so amazing, and I think with um, looking on the website, the New York Public Library website, and just Googling you guys, it's led to, you know, me wanting to read a lot of other books too. Uh, My question is, do you feel that the negative um, stereotype associated with this book has overshadowed the um, historical impact of the book, and also, um, what reasons? Um, what reasons do you think the book has sold so many copies, um, second to the Bible?
4: Well, I think that certainly since the nineteen twenties, since the Harlem Renaissance, black people stopped reading this book, and black people read it like everybody else up until the nineteen twenties, and that's what fascinates me most of all. And that's very, it's very, very important, and and, and after. 1948, 1949, when James Baldwin wrote about it, everybody stopped reading. <laughs> Lots of people stopped reading the book after, after that. Um, what was the other part of your question?
2: Take away from its historical oh, points.
3: Um, well, where do you? Go?
2: Well, it's impossible to be neutral
3: about the book. I mean, it's really impossible to be neutral. I mean, uh, to, on the question of race, she clearly believed that all races would be equal in heaven, but not but not here. And, and that's a difficulty. And I think the, I mean, I think that your question is 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 a good one in in terms of why Baldwin kept returning it. I mean, if if part of your question and your question is why why do we return to it when there is so much racism in it we return to it because it had an impact because it had a huge impact yeah. and we've gotten beyond the impact of it and perhaps it's but it's not just a, a historical artifact there's something more to it and you know writers from Tolstoy to Henry James to Baldwin have been struggling with what that impact is and and i certainly after spending Three intimate years with this book don't know what it, what where what its mystery is where it lies. But it is something of a mystery.
7: We return to it because it is, you know, it is absolutely jammed to overflowing with everything from the most prime, you know, primitive impulses, you know, to describe, to categorize, um, you know, subconscious eruptions, um, canny, canny. Uh, you know, in intuitions and insights into the world. So we return to it, I think, because it's this kind of map, um, you know, of a somewhat unbounded artist, preacher, you know, person with all these limitations and, and gifts. And, you know, we, you can't not find something of your worst self in it, as well as, you know, bits of, in fact, in moment at moments, your best self. Um, But when we return to it because we're never above it. We're never completely beyond it
4: And if you're writing a history of african-american literature if you're teaching african-american literature if you're studying african-american literature It is impossible to understand the, the, na- the development of uh, the narrative tradition in the 19th century, particularly, without reading Uncle Tom's Cabin. Because black people spent their time rewriting this book over and over and over again in both the slave narratives and in in other novels. Even James Baldwin, which is the point of my, um, my essay, that Baldwin was obsessed. I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, she, uh, his mother hid it. He found it. Uh, He wrote out the sentences, he wrote out the paragraphs, he rewrote them, and then went long and internalized those sentences, I think, and her um, various aspects of her novelistic technique played themselves out in his own novels. Um, So that I think that Uncle Tom's Cabin is just, other than the Bible, the most important silent second text in the history of African American letters, without a doubt.
2: And...
7: American letters, it is. Again, I'll go back to I do think it's a national epic in American literature.
2: I want to thank Hollis Robbins, Henry Louis Gates, Margaret Jefferson.
0: Thanks for listening to the New York Public Library podcast. If you like what you hear, subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. And please leave us a review. It really helps us out a lot. You can follow NYPL on Twitter or Facebook and sign up for our newsletter at nypl.org.